Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's episode, we're going to be talking about the limits of our intelligence with the brilliant Tomás Ryan and Ben Cowan. It was a live event we recorded in TU Dublin Grange Gorman campus as part of Science Week. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining us uh, is Dr. Shane Bergen, cosplay scientist from UCD, and uh, Philip Smith, uh, the science guy from the telly. Uh, You're both very welcome. Our first story, Philip, is about DNA. Yes, and how the Great Depression uh, shaped it. Uh, This is an epigenetics study. um, And what epigenetics is, is is the study of your behaviours and environment and how they can change basically how your genes interpret DNA code. So unlike genetic changes, epigenetic changes can be reversed. But really what you're kind of looking at is is really how the body decodes your DNA and interprets it. So the worst uh, recession in US history shaped how well people would age before they were ever born, which is really quite interesting. So researchers have found that the cells of people who were conceived during the Great Depression, which lasted from 1929 to 1930 time, uh, and its height saw about 25% of the US workforce unemployed, show signs of accelerated ageing later in life, which is quite interesting. Now, the, the, the work which was published just last month in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences uh, is, is kind of adding to a cache of studies which kind of talks about the exposure of, let's call it hardship, stress, yeah. um, you know, things of starvation and how that you know, affects our early, early development. But a co-author in Lauren Smith was really talking about what this affects later on in life. And the study is, is like I said, is not, it's the, not the first time that people have looked at this, but the fact that they, you can see this in people in now in their 70s and 80s is quite mind-blowing. It, it's really kind of like a, this one will be in the textbooks somewhere. And what is really quite interesting about this is that Schmidt has kind of said that what they can see from this study is that so economic structural inequalities that make it difficult for women to access the care they need, uh, particularly how it affects their babies later in life, it can now be related to what's happening in the US Supreme Court, which has revoked the re- federal right to abortion. So, stu- Yeah, so this is a, like decades of research have shown that people who are denied abortion are more likely to experience financial hardship after their unwanted pregnancy. So they're kind of showing that if you have this hardship later in your life, it will affect you way later into your your life and then you will age more in your 70s and 80s. Uh, I know that um, obviously the famine was a period of uh, huge hardship in Ireland. I don't know if there are studies into the epigenetics and the changes that are passed down. But yeah, I I mean, I've heard sort of some studies sort of um, questioning the relevancy of of epigenetics. I'd love to um, dig deeper on that. Maybe we'll see if we can get someone, Aidan, our producer, maybe we'll see if we can get someone uh, to talk to us about the relevancy of of epigenetics when it comes to something like the, the famine. But like the idea that the environment in which you're in when you conceive will affect your children. That doesn't seem to be, you know, wildly um, an mm. outrageous an idea, but love to know more. Um, Shane, our second story uh, has to do with the leap second, something that we talk about quite a bit in this programme. Oh yeah, one of my favourites, Jonathan. It's up there with dogs and electricity. Time, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> as you know, the days are getting longer and that's because the, the Earth, which is spinning, is slowing down, right? So, in astronomical terms... Uh, the length of the day is, is slightly getting longer. And it doesn't... And that's nothing to do with winter. No, 
No, it, no, no. <laughs> so what we have to do is we have to get the astronomical clock to line up with how we officially define time, which is using the atomic clock. A, a strange aside, I'm going to visit the atomic clock in 10 days time in Boulder, Colorado. I'm quite excited about that. Okay. So uh, the atomic clock is what defines time. And so in order for days to match with it, occasionally we have to add on something called the leap second, which accounts for the, the, the slightly longer day. When you say occasionally, do you mean every four years? Well, since 1972, there have been 27 leap seconds. Huh. And the last one you'd remember was in 2016, because yes. we spoke about it at length on this programme. Um, and so having like the same instant in time twice, in other words, it being you know, exactly midnight for two seconds is really confusing for a lot of machines. Yeah. <laughs> Sat-navs, software, trade, a big one, and indeed space travel. So at a recent um, meeting of the International Bureau of Weights and Measures in Paris, something I'd like to go to, they've decided to abandon the leap second, right? So from 2035, there will be no additional leap seconds. And what they're going to do is just let the difference between astro- astronomical time and atomic time, like, run wild. And they're, they're saying they're going to let the, the gap grow to anything up to a minute. Right. right. And after a minute, then you fix it. Yeah. So, so you, you just got do, 60. You just do one big change rather than lots of little changes because, you know, you can tell the computer, hopefully by the time this comes around, our computers will be that little bit smarter. So it might be able to handle the leap second in, in a better way. That's really interesting. So if you let that gap keep going, presumably then at some point the computers would think it was nighttime when it was actually daytime. After a long, 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 long time. But you could also tell by looking out the window yourself. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> Occam's razor, isn't it? Um, <laughs> our third story has to do with teacher biases, Phil. This is a really interesting one. It was. And obviously, like, I mean, all of us have been in classes and thought that we were getting blamed for things more than others. It was you, though, Phil. It was. It was actually you, yeah. (laughs) I can't confirm that it was me. Uh, But this is quite actually a serious study um, uh, by, uh, by Jayanti Owens, who is in the Yale School of Management. And what this is to do is kind of like the, the kind of what they were calling double jeopardy. And this is a fact that they were looking at research in social psychology. Um, we're basically looking at kind of radicalised or marginalised aspects or demographics of society. And what they were doing is they surveyed, they had video evidence. So they looked at kind of how things and behaviours were happening in classes. and so they, they fil- filmed classes yes. and, and, and looked out for misbehaviour. Yeah, they did. And they this was kind of was building on previous studies using that, had used this data as well. And they had about... You know, over 1,300 students or teachers in about almost 300 US schools. And what they were seeing was that there was a predisposition for uh, members of the black and the Latino community to get blamed for more stuff. It, they were called that they're more blameworthy, which means they're more likely to get blamed for things that happen in class than white students that were in the class. And the teacher had teachers had this bias. So they then progressed on a study to actually look that if they presented videos to these teachers and they showed them essentially the the, the students doing the same misbehaviour who would be behaving worse 
And again, they associated that the black and the Latino students were behaving worse because they were more blameworthy, which is really quite interesting because what it was leading to and what this study is kind of, you know, kind of talking about is how this then affects later in life. And if that bias is, you know, is developed at this stage, particularly in an educational environment, that it can not only exacerbate the problem, but really heighten it. Because if you look in the US at the moment, black boys are suspended and expelled or disciplined 3.2 times more than white boys. And this also has to do with not only because of this bias, but because they're being watched more because of this bias. So right. if, you, if you presume that, okay, that, that he's a bad egg, I'm going to watch him more, you're going to naturally see, or those people are, you're going to watch and see things happening more often because you're observing them more as opposed to anything else. So then they kind of go, oh, no, no, I've definitely cut this person mm-hmm. 10 times more. But then this proliferates into society, proliferates into, into jobs, and then also how these people perceive themselves which then actually means that they're more likely to then kind of, well, this is the norm, it should be what I'm actually doing. So this study is really looking to, and I actually thought, you know, this study, it's kind of the, the Anne Bergen... Uh, Anberg Institute, which I read it looked like Anne Bergen. I thought it was a cousin of yours, Shane, for some reason. Um, but the, the Anberg Institute is Such really... a smart family. I know, really, really. The, the reverse bias. Kylie, the reverse He's bias. He's an idiot. <laughs> Clearly. But they're looking to kind of address these gaps and balances. So that's what they're trying to do is to stop this at the source and really, because we all have biases, we naturally have them, but if they, they seem to be per- perpetuating throughout these people's lives. Look, there, there is a very serious lesson for parents here um, and, and for teachers too in marking children as being a problem child because I, I've had it said to me, oh, this this sort of stuff, you know, it's those guys again, um, because it reinforces a stereotype, it changes your behaviour towards them and uh, it ends up um, becoming this sort of uh, uh, spiral, which may or may not necessarily end in a very bad outcome for, for a child, but it certainly can, can, can lead to it. And I think as parents of children, we do need to, to check ourselves and, and ask ourselves, am I being unfair or subjective in this scenario when I'm describing uh, a kid that may be misbehaved or may have an inverted commas reputation because they, you know, as, as you said there, Phil, there's good evidence to show that people become the thing that you, you say they are. Mm. And for, for our children, we really have to always try and, and say that the the behavior they, they did is unacceptable, but they're not a bad boy or That's a bad girl. why streaming doesn't work, right? Because if you put, like, you know, if you just determine at the age of 13 that a child is not good at something, they, like they can internalize that and yeah. start to think, well, I'm not good at that. Mm. You know, and that, that issue of race in the United States, you could, you could, you know that we all do that in Irish society when it comes to class, yeah. right? So um, we will make judgments about people based on the way they talk and where they're from. And so in teacher education, there's a huge amount of work that goes on around psychology and sociology to make what Phil has just said like really uh, apparent to students. So they make us all aware of the fact that all of us have biases. And if you think you don't, then like, you know, I've news for you. Yeah. Um, really interesting stuff. Uh, our final story, Shane, has to do with really, really big numbers. Yes, this is another piece of great uh, work from the General Conference of Weights and Measures in Paris. These guys <laughs> I mean, this is Max. I just want to say, if this is Shane's the first time listening to this here. program, this is Max geekiness, and I know Shane is like in heaven. But uh, but it is it is also very interesting apropos of itself. So like, let's not, I mean, it is super geeky, but actually also very interesting. It's really cool. So in in science, scale is everything, right? So we have to be able to measure things that are absolutely infinitesimally small and then absolutely enormous. 
And so we need numbers to do that. And we talk about powers of 10, right? So something on the scale of a metre or a thousand metres, a kilometre or a million uh, metres, etc. And you can keep going up. People are most familiar with this when it comes to data, right? And the storage you might have on your flash drive, right? A gigabyte or something. Or if you have one of those portable hard drives, a terabyte. So a the, thousand gigabytes. Yeah, so it's it's these, these prefaces prefixes are what I'm talking about here, right? Before, before we get 1,024. Yeah. Yes, Sorry, absolutely. Yeah. So because of the uh, prolific generation of data, right, just, just stuff, cat pictures, basically, um, <laughs> <laughs> these guys in Paris have had to introduce terms for 10 to the 27, which is uh, one with 27 zeros after it, and 10 to the 30, that's uh, one with 30 zeros after it. So 10 to the 27 is now called a RANA. So you could have a RANA byte, right? Um, or 10 to the 30 is called a QUETA. So a QUETA byte of data. So they've been introduced because of these enormous new um, sort of scales that we have to talk about when it comes to data science. And interestingly, they've gone the other direction too. So uh, a zero point and then 27 zeros and a one, right? Or um, 10 to the minus 27, that's a ronto. And 10 to the minus 30 is a quecto. So these are new words. And there was a huge amount of work that had to go into it uh, for them to come up with them. And they sound odd. But as somebody in the article I read said, giga and tera, like gigabyte, terabyte, those prefixes were once really odd as well. But, mm. but now they're everyday, right? Very interesting. I, I, I mean, I suppose for some people, they're going to need to use those numbers. I would imagine those people are mathematicians and people at the bleeding edge of science. So but the mass point, of the Earth is one ronogram and the mass of an electron is one quectogram. So we already have a use. Oh, OK. Very good. Well done, Shane. Well done, well done you. Yeah. That was that's very really good. good. Very good. Um, <laughs> Thank you. All right, so that's your little factoid for um, for today. The uh, the mass of the Earth is one one ronogram. One one ronogram. There you go. That yeah. doesn't sound like much, does it? All those people, all that stuff, just one ronogram. Uh, Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and science guy from the telly, Phil Smith, thanks very much for joining us. Right. Last week, we were doing a very special show in TU Dublin Grange Gorman campus for Science Week, where we were looking at the limits of our intelligence. We had Tomás Ryan from Trinity College Dublin and Ben Cowan from the Adapt Research Centre on to talk about the possibility of infinite intelligence. Right. So we've been exploring infinite possibilities of science as a theme of Science Week. And one of the things that I wanted to explore is, is infinite intelligence, because through sci-fi and in some case eccentric billionaires, most of us have become loosely familiar with the idea of intelligent robots or a future where we could conceivably download our consciousness into a computer. And if this became possible, might we find ourselves on the verge of infinite life and infinite intelligence? But is that just a pipe dream or could science one day lead us there? Well, Dr. Benjamin Cowan is an associate professor at UCD's School of Information and Communication Studies and co-principal investigator at the ADAPT Centre. And Tomás Ryan is associate professor in the School of Biochemistry and Immunology at the Trinity College Institute of Neuroscience. So you're both very welcome. Let's talk first, Tomás, about what intelligence is and, and what our ourselves are. So your work is in a sort of consciousness and memory. Um, do we yet know what our consciousness and what our memory, what ourselves are in the physical thing that is our brain. 
Right. So I'm, I'm a neuroscientist, which is just another way of saying I don't know how the brain works. And <laughs> I don't think anyone can really say today that we have a good understanding of how the brain works. People who study intelligence specifically, they're researchers who are looking at the little differences between everyone in the room on how they might perform in an IQ scale. And they're interested in, is that due to genetic variation or how you're raised, your experiences, your education? I think you're talking about intelligence more in the broad sense of everything that our brain does. And we know a lot about how we encode memories in the brain. And we know a lot about the hardware, about how the brain is storing this information. We're starting to get insights into which parts of your brain store specific memories. But that's all about the hardware. What we don't understand is the software. We describe the software with psychology, but in between there's a gap. We don't really know how the brain is making these computations. So we need to know that in order to be able to have that kind of link uh, between the brain and artificial intelligence. But with regard to your question as to our, do we have a bound to our intelligence, to our consciousness, I think we need to remember that the brain uh, evolved. Our brain evolved over the last 600 million to 1 billion years. And at some point, we were a basic worm-like creature with a handful of neurons. I wasn't. And, well, um, <laughs> because you're an android, you know. Uh, <laughs> but at some point, that there was an organism that started to think reflexively. Maybe it was Homo sapiens, maybe it was an early hominid, maybe it's higher primates, we don't know. But their imaginative capacity is limited. Our imaginative capacity is still limited. So there's no reason to think that we're any any significant way in the journey to increasing the bounds of our intelligence. So um, you talked about the two different parts there, and I, I kind of think of it like we have the, the data, which is our memories, and then we have the sort of software that accesses our memories and then comes up with thought. Are those two separate things? Like can, can we? I remember seeing a, an image of a, a memory being stored, and I don't know if I got that wrong, but do we have images of that? And, and does that not imply that we have sort of deposits of knowledge in our brain and then does that not imply then that we could read them one day and copy them somewhere else so the brain we know is composed of a network of a billion neurons or so that are connected by trillions of synaptic connections just means the con connections between a net of neurons so we think that Part of the magic of the brain is the complexity of this network. The other aspect of it is that it's electrochemically active, so it moves extremely quickly. We can see now which nodes on this network are active when we form a particular memory. And this only became really possible in the last 10 years. So we like to say that's a memory, but it's still quite crude because we don't know how those cells are storing the memory. We don't know is the memory in those particular cells or is the memory really embedded in the network and the cells were involved in changing the network at that particular point in time. Right. So I think that we tend to view these things through the lens of the technology of the time. So 100 years ago, people looked at these things more through mechanics and hydraulics. Today, we try and make sense of the brain through our understanding about computer science. Now, the problem is that with technology, we understand how it works, or somebody understands how it works. I don't necessarily <laughs> understand how a computer works, really, but somebody does. And so we use that information as an analogy to explain how the brain works. Uh, now, that can be quite limiting, uh, particularly because when we're designing computers today, we often 
often think software first and we embed that on the hardware. Uh, whereas in something like the brain, the information, the computations, which are surely happening, are emergent from a hardware structure itself, from a topographical structure that we went from something that had muscles and cartilage and, and a circularity system to evolving these electrically active nodes oh, yeah. that became more and more complicated and at some point started to have representations, not just of the world that it was experiencing, but representations of itself. In other words, feeding back simulations onto itself, inside itself, like the way our immune system does, right? Our antibodies are representations of pathogens that we've seen before. So imagine that happening by an order of magnitude multiplied by seven cortical layers, and you're getting an idea of what uh, imagination and what are the weird way we perceive the world might be happening in our brain. Now, the problem is at the moment, what we can do is we can listen in on the brain and we can go in and we can break things and we can ask what that does to behavior and we can ask how these things are going wrong in disease. But we're not yet at the stage of understanding what a piece of information looks like to the brain and how it makes sense of the world in a way that we could translate over to to AI or to robotics. So, so we're not there yet. We're not quite sure if that's the nature of our consciousness, of, of the nature of what it is to be us. So we don't know whether or not it's something that we would be able to sort of copy across, you're saying. No, I think we, we need to take inspiration from successful sciences of information. And the only successful science of information that I'm aware of is genetics. Uh, and the way we figured out genetics was not by uh, comparing it to computers and it wasn't by doing any interesting statistical model to infer what was happening in a cell. The way we did it was we narrowed down on the substance that we thought was carrying a gene and we cut it out and we put it into another organism and that organism got the information. We could see mm. that that was responsible for giving a phenotype to the destination bacteria, which was the original experiments were done in bacteria. So I think we need to have the same logic in understanding uh, information in the brain. So in an idealized experiment, I would I would take your brain and I if and I would look inside. You'd ask first. I would, <laughs> I would find I would find a memory engram that's coding for a particular memory and and I would put it into your brain and I would see do you have the experience of not no longer wanting to go on a run or you know how that would how that would affect your your behavior. And if I could say that I could predict this was the memory for that information and the other organism was to act on it that way, then I would know I, I have the material of memory and I would at least then be in a position to solve the coding problem. That's a really cool experiment. Has that been done? No, uh, for, for very good reason. The brain is a lot more complicated than the genome. Um, but people but have you've done, done... You've done something in mice, right? Well, some people um, in the 60s and 70s were trying these kind of types of very crude experiments where they would mash up the brains of mice that they trained, extract the RNA and transplant it into destination mice that were naive, that were not trained, uh, to see if they could reproduce the behavior. Uh, and this so, is so what you're saying is they blended up the brain of a mouse, took out the RNA, put it into the mouse, uh, into the brain of a healthy mouse and, and saw if it knew what the other mouse knew. Right. And of course, these experiments don't really work out because oh. the information... <laughs> I was is, like, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> so because the information is probably not at a chemical level, right? The information is in the structure of the brain. So once you mash up the brain, you end up in trouble. Uh, we did some more 
rudimentary or less ambitious experiments about, about five or six years ago in Boston, where we took mice that were trained to experience a particular maze, and we labeled the engram cells uh, for that particular maze. So we knew that the mice had a particular set of cells that somehow were contributing to their uh, knowledge of a particular room. And then what we did was we optogenetically stimulated these cells, which basically means we can turn on and off the brain cells uh, with light delivered through an optic fiber. Uh, so we can make the cells spike uh, whenever we want. But while we were doing this, when the mice were in a safe environment in their home cage, then we would give them either a pleasurable stimulus or a painful stimulus. So the painful stimulus means a mild electrical shock. It doesn't harm them. It just causes them discomfort. Our positive experience is we give them some time with a female mice because they're isolated male mice. Right. Um, and what, <laughs> what, what sort of lab are you running what, towards? What, uh, it's a major problem that most of biology focuses on male mice. So we're, we're trying to change that at the moment. Is that a joke? No, it's a. It oh doesn't my God! Like even it's even gone into mice. I, I, I realized it was a problem in the in the world of humans, but even mice is yeah. mice research is gendered. Yeah, about about eighty percent of all biomedical research is is done on on male animals, and this is a serious problem for translation uh, to the human condition. Yeah. That's that's another problem. It is. But the point is, we were able to show that we could get the mouse to believe that they either had a good experience or a negative experience in the room that they did not have that experience in. Now, we were cheating in a way because we had the mouse create the original memory its own way. So the brain did it the original magic, however the brain does it, and we still don't understand how that works. But then we were able to hijack that to add just a little bit more information, but do it in a way that was kind of inception, that we didn't actually um, that the mouse didn't experience what it thought it had experienced. We created a false belief about the world. And this is a starting point where we're able to start to basically hijack on the brain's natural way of doing things and to nudge it in different directions so we can start to narrow in on what the minimal components of, of a piece of information is. But we're not yet at the stage of, of transferring it to other animals. Wow. And what memory. was the title of that paper? Was it Incepting Sexist Mice? <laughs> it was. I mean, in fairness, they, they don't know they're being experimental. Um, so, Ben, you were nodding along there. I mean, how much does the un our understanding of the brain overlap into AI? Because we don't really fully understand how the brain works. And yet I constantly hear AI people saying, we're, do we're, we're doing stuff that just looks it's just like the brain. Yeah, I mean... I think to some extent the techniques that are used, especially now, do have inspiration from psychology. And obviously Tomas has brilliantly outlined how complex the brain is, uh, especially when we think about consciousness, when we think about sentience, those elements there. Um, so I think the processes and methods that are used have some inspiration. So, for instance, trying to mimic how neurons work. So you're, you're, the use of neural networks is basically on that premise. Same thing on things like reinforcement learning, using you know what can be moved down to the elements of behaviorism in psychology, about the fact we have rewards and punishments to be able to train a machine in terms of what to do and what not to do. So some of those have taken inspiration from psychology, for sure, but... You know, there is no way that we are emulating the human brain when it comes to AI in a million years, in my view, anyway. Um, and, uh, you know, that's not to say that some methods may not take some aspects from psychology and try and move them forward in the methods that we already see. Um, but for me, yeah, the complexity of, this, of the human brain is absolutely mind-blowing. And it's something very hard to, to synthesize. So when we talk about intelligence in machines, and particularly in AI, what are we trying to get at 
Uh, and uh, and wh- where are we with that? Yeah, so I mean, when we're thinking about intelligence or, or a machine that seems intelligent, you're you're actually talking about uh, a machine that's a pattern recognizer, really, or something that is looking at, you know, you give lots of data to an algorithm to say, like, this is a picture of a sheep or this is a picture of a cow or whatever you want to choose, and you train it. You train it on recognizing those things. And those algorithms are very good at doing that. We're very good at doing very simple, delineated tasks that you want to do uh, uh, for that. When it starts breaking down a bit is when we ask them to do something like abstract reasoning or something about trying to uh, connect something causally or things that we do as intelligent human beings. And we do kind of naturally, and that's kind of our superpower really, uh, is a sense of being able to do that. And it kind of breaks down because the architectures don't really work for that kind of thing. So that's where we're at at the moment. There's a sense that we can get AI to be excellent at chess and brilliant at Go. Um, but there are a number of things that we can't get some, uh, uh, an AI to be very good at at the moment. So for instance, you know, as an example, think about whether an AI you know, could advise government in terms of setting interest rates. Like, I mean, we couldn't get it to do that because it's got high amounts of uncertainty. We can high get it to of, run Twitter. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, supposedly, yeah. The, um, but there's so much complexity involved in that, so much uncertainty and mm. so many factors that are involved in that. You need a huge amount of data to train an AI to be able to do something like that. But um, we, we constantly hear in, in the news that new breakthroughs have happened of AI getting closer. And, and one of the most significant ones is one we covered on the program, uh, which was Lambda, where uh, an engineer at uh, a large AI researcher, I think it was Google, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, claimed that the AI they were working on was reaching something close to self-awareness. And the conversations that we read out in that episode, if you haven't listened to it, um, have a look back um, in, in the uh, Go Loud player. It was absolutely fascinating because the sort of language that we were seeing really felt like a human being. What, what's happening when um, when this natural conversation is happening? It's just taking snippets of, is it just taking snippets of of bits from the internet, like a, a sentence from a magazine online? Or, or is it actually sticking sentences together? Because it seems like it's doing that, but it couldn't be, could it? Well, it, it's, it, it's a little bit more complex than sticking sentences together and things like that. It learns a lot about the language. It learns a lot about concepts when it goes through in terms of those models, in terms of that training data and in terms of that training. So it does, it can piece together the language it, itself. So it's not directly taking a quote from somebody's, you know, a blog post about a particular thing. But it is using data from, I mean, the, the reason why it says yes to the question of it being sentient, for instance, and describing those things is because it's taking data data from sentient beings us so it's you know that's why it seems sentient that's why it seems to be giving those responses is because it has that data to learn from um and that's where these in effect in effect a kind of parlor trick um happens where these models are suggesting that they're human but they're not really operating the same way that humans do at all from the thought process in the back we're just going to pause for a second uh, for ads but we'll be back in a few minutes time where we're going to be speaking to a chatbot to see exactly how intelligent these machines are uh, this was a recording of future proof at tu dublin grange gorman as part of science week with thanks to science foundation ireland we'll be back in a bit <laughs> Thank you. 
You're listening to Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae. Uh, we're playing you the uh, second part of our live event that happened in TU Dublin, Grange Gorman, as part of Science Week. We recorded a live episode of Future Proof. And we had Tomás Ryan from Trinity College Dublin and Ben Cowan from the Adapt Research Centre talking about limitless intelligence. And I wanted to see how smart these machines really are right now. So we started to chat to a chatbot. So this is the most advanced stuff that's available freely on the internet. So it's not not really what we think is the most advanced on the planet. Although, as uh, as Ben points out, we don't have access to that. And some some of these models, you imagine Google has so much information. Oh, its most advanced AI would be a little bit further on this. But this is uh, what is this? GTP, GP, yeah, GPT three. GPT three. So the way it works is you type in a paragraph, and then it it starts continuing. It just writes for you. So I'll put in a paragraph and I've said, we're here in TU Dublin learning about AI. Thanks for joining us. One of the big questions I have really is about whether or not we will ever get fully sent into AI. If we do, what then? Should these machines have the same rights as natural born humans? And like many Leaving Cert students I'd imagine at the moment, uh, I'm just going to let the AI fill out the rest of my essay, right? <laughs> uh, so I'm going to pre- generate text. I'll read you out some of it, uh, but just, uh, just a word of warning. I have got some questionable results here. So, we're, you know, we're all adults here, which is good. I, I, I have nothing to do with this. So if there is anything appropriate, I just want to give a news talk and personal disclaimer, right? So here we go. Uh, let's see what it does. Let's back up and think about that for a second. Think about the non-AI part. If we develop a whole new intelligent species, it would be quite a long time before we'd be able to communicate with them and if we ever got to the point where they can reason. What about if one of them developed a conscience? They'd probably never talk to us because they're not as scary as they are. Uh, So in many ways, they can never have the same rights as we do. Now, let's step back to the AI part. Suppose we made an AI, and let's say this AI was self-aware and conscious. What happens when you program it to develop a conscious sort of uh, conscience? It's sort of repeating itself here. It has no way of communicating with us. How would it even know that we're about to kill a human being? I'd go with humans because I'd want to live on. Uh, I guess it would, or it could, he could be saying, I, I'd, I'd go with humans because I want to live on. Maybe this is a sentient AI. We've discovered a sentient AI. There we go. I guess it would be a moral thing to stop the AI from killing us before it got killed. Um, but how would we even know? We have no way of communicating with the AI and that any communication is limited to binary. So that's not bad, is it? A round of applause for the yeah. AI. <laughs> so what, what, what is that AI doing there? What, like, what, what is Because that sounds like something anyone could say. It sounds like something yeah. some of my fellow broadcasters might say when, they, when <laughs> they delve into the world of science. It's rubbish. No, that's a, that's a total <laughs> joke. That's a joke. What is... I mean, it sounds like what well, I could say in a lecture as well. Um, so it's um, no. I mean, it's it, it's basically learnt from you know from a number of different uh, places how to sound natural in terms of answering that question. So it's taken you know. I mean, it would be you know millions and millions of uh, words, pieces of text, anything to make sense of that those particular sentences to give us an illusion or a sense that it's trying to make a point about particular things. Now you'll notice, as you said, it started repeating. So in earlier uh, in earlier language models, you'd see that repetition happening an awful lot and it would break down and just speak utter garbage. Uh, whereas the new ones are actually very, very good. But again, it's the significant amount of data, the increased number of kind of layers in the neural net uh, and all those things that are, that are working in its favor. But yeah, I mean, they produce some really, really believable statements. I mean, it would at least be a C plus. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it might be. So um, in uh, Douglas Adams' books, uh, the series, the trilogy that wasn't a trilogy, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there was this supercomputer that uh, was asked the meaning of life and took forever and came up with the number as the answer, which is very confusing, but also very funny. And um, I'm wondering, 
like how, how, if we keep developing AI and keep feeding that information, is it is it possible that we'll get to this Oracle type uh, computing where we can ask the machine anything and it will know the answer to everything? Is that I mean, is there a limit to the intelligence of AI in terms of at least information retrieval um, in that way? I mean, it, again, it depends on what the question is going to be that you're going to ask it. So if it's going to be like, what will happen if I you know, use a certain policy instrument to do X, Y, and Z uh, as a government or something like that, or, ma or make a, a very life-changing decision for yourself? But we, could, we gonna... could probably do that, right? I mean, if, we, if, if it had enough data, it would probably be able to weigh... I mean, like better than some governments, you would imagine. Well, I mean, um, but there's a lot of uncertainty in the decisions. There's a lot of abstract reasoning. But even in human decisions. human decisions, is there's, yeah. there's yeah, yeah. you know, it's difficult for a human to make that decision. And if it mm -hmm. had all the information on what happened when you change interest rates over time, what happened in other countries historically, what are the markets, what are the what's the sentiment on Twitter at the moment when it comes to certain foreign exchanges, you'd imagine that it, would, it, it should make a much better decision than humans. At some point in the future, we will have a god AI. No, um, I mean. To go from a, a helpful interest rate setter like application <laughs> to to a god AI is a big jump, but um, but um, I mean some economists might disagree. Um, but uh, there there is definitely you know there's definitely potential there for using getting methods that will work for those decisions that have a number of moving parts. But again, it's just the amount of data that's required for those very complex decisions becomes astronomical. Yeah. I mean, so I'm, I was thinking about this recently about like you know thinking about intelligent AI and going what would happen with a robot who's never seen uh, my kitchen? Would they be able to make a cup of tea? Right? That's not an intelligent thing necessarily to do we can all yeah. do that and the answer is probably no um, at the point because there's a number of movements a number of different things that happen so you have to kind of you know put the kettle on you have to kind of do you move your hands you put your mug down you do these things all those elements are steps that need to be made and have data to be fed into it so if you think about that that's a huge amount of data mm. just for a robot to be able to walk in and make me a cup of tea and so there's so godlike ai i'm not sure right. not even making tea ai <laughs> i'm not sure either uh, Tomas, uh, do our brains ever get full? Is there any um, understanding? We talked about infinite intelligence in in computers. Could we be infinite in, in infinitely intelligent as people, or or is there a limit to how much we can keep in our brain? So I don't think that we actually have a limited capacity for information in the way that a computer does, because wow. we're not storing information in in ones and zeros according to a particular code. The way our brain stores information, we don't really know how it's doing it yet, but we know that it's somehow changing our brain structure. And we know that the resulting memories can last as long as you do. You can make it to 80 or 90 years of age and remember relatively innocuous things about things that happened to you when you were a teenager. Uh, so clearly the information is, is very stable. Uh, but also there seems to be, um, you know, a, a boundless limit for experiences, for, for trivial experiences that we accumulate. At the same time... It's You're talking about Instagram. Well, for, <laughs> I mean, conversations, situations. What makes our memory uh, powerful is when uh, experiences are specific, right? When, when they're unique, when they're idiosyncratic, or when they're a bit wacky, because mm. then you can separate them out from the rest of your memories. And the more interesting experiences you have, the more you're able to rem remember discrete things. And that doesn't always translate to when you're trying to study for an exam. 
because there you're learning a very dry, maybe not very well-structured body of knowledge that you're expected to regurgitate in some kind of situation. And you know this is because our education system is still wanting. But the point is that, yes, when you have a particular criterion or a particular expectation of what someone is supposed to remember, our memory seems like it can get full. But if you take a more sort of ethnographic view of our memory, if you were an alien neuroscientist coming from Alpha Centauri and you come down to Earth and you were to look at humans, you would say that, well, actually, their, their memory capacity seems to be quite extensive because they evolved to be hunter-gatherers in the savanna in Africa. Their biology hasn't really changed very much since then in the past 200,000 years, and yet they're able to keep up with Instagram, Twitter, current affairs, everything that's happening, and get university degrees, engage in research, engage in interesting conversations. And so we clearly have this, this capacity for uh, nested informational structures. And what I mean by that is that a piece of information is not this categorical one or zero. This is what it means in all circumstances. We have this sort of layering of, layering of information which, which actually preceded our brain because our genetic code means one thing in a sperm cell. It means another thing in a zygote. It means a completely different thing in my intestine. It means another thing when it gets into a brain cell, even though it's the same genome. Mm. I think the same thing is probably happening when we talk about the information that we're learning. So it's not that we have an infinite capacity for information. I can only learn so many things. What we have is a boundless capacity for reinterpreting information in different ways. Um, I, I like to uh, demonstrate this when I'm, I'm doing training of, of my clients when I do my communications work. So I'll, I'll do it with you, actually. So uh, I'd like you to please raise your hand if you remember a time when you were a young child that you were embarrassed or ashamed. So raise your hand if you remember. So a, a time when you were embarrassed or ashamed. So almost, uh, I would say almost everybody. So keep your hand raised. So I want to ask you. So almost everybody in the room remembers a time when they were a child. And, and no offense, but some of you are quite old. Um, <laughs> Uh, keep that hand raised if you remember the name of the person who made you feel that way. Okay. Uh, keep your hand raised if you remember the exact words that were said to you. Okay. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So like it's it's extraordinary, isn't it? The things that make us feel that as you talked about that what separates the the boring memories from the. If I asked you to you know, describe the person who served you coffee um, in a cup two days ago, you probably wouldn't remember anything unless you flirted with them or they spilt it over you or something. So um, it, it, it goes to show that we, we, if there's something unusual about that memory, we keep it. Yeah. If the, if the memory has high emotional salience, then uh, you tend to retain it more easily. If, if people are insulted, of course, they tend to remember things persistently. But which, equally is, which is why I wanted this audience um, uh, to remember this evening by insulting them, by calling yeah. them old. But, 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 <laughs> but equally so, you may have had an experience that you didn't remember at all that seemed completely innocuous. And maybe a weeks or months later, you realize, oh, that person was flirting with me. <laughs> and then you're... How, how could I re re how does that memory survive? So I think that uh, we have a way of accessing information that is dependent on context. Uh, the real limit of memory, I think, is not our storage capacity, it's our consciousness. It's that we can only access one or two memories in a moment. So all your memories and your instincts are basically fighting with each other for pick me, pick me, I want to be accessed right now in this particular moment because I'm the most relevant piece of information for you. And the real skill is, of course, 
synthesizing more than one piece of information in a moment. And that's really, really hard to do, even for motor tasks. And that's why athletics is so challenging. So I think that we need to, in the future, if we're going to evolve as an organism or if we're going to have neuro-inspired AI, part of it is not going to be about expanding our capacity, but reimagining how we experience things from a moment-to-moment -moment basis. Because one of the problems with being a human is we have this very narrow perception of time. Well, I hope we have made some memories for you. That is about time for us on uh, this week's Future Brief. Absolutely fascinating uh, conversation with Dr. Tomas Ryan from Trinity College and uh, Dr. Benjamin Cowan from UCD and ADAPT. Thank you to our panel. Really enjoyed that live event and uh, we must do another one again soon. Thanks again to, to you, uh, Dublin Greenwich Government and Science Foundation Ireland. Just a reminder, if you are interested in how we communicate science to the world, we're going to be exploring things like communicating climate change and who we should be celebrating as our heroes in science at SCICOM, www.scicom.ie, Ireland's National Conference on Science Communication. Uh, we'd love to see you there. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.